You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. That's it. You're madder than a junkyard dog, and you're not going to take it anymore. Your feathers are ruffled, your dander's up, and you've got a definite bone to pick. Welcome to Pet Peeves, the show that lets you dig through the dirt and unleash your passion for pets. Why let sleeping dogs lie when you can take the bull by the horns and let the fur fly? So get your claws out and get ready to rattle some cages on Pet Peeves with your host, pet expert, and award-winning author, Amy Shoja. Hey there, and welcome to Pet Peeves on PetLifeRadio.com. I'm your host, Amy Shojai, and today we're talking about pedigree dogs and breeding for looks and health, and are they mutually exclusive? That brings me to my rant of the week. We love the squashed-in nose and wrinkles of the bulldog and the pug, the tiny pocketbook size of the Yorkie and the Chihuahua, the cowlick fur on the Ridgeback, How could these be bad? Well, a recent BBC show titled Pedigree Dogs Exposed did a lot of hand-waving and gasping about funny-looking breeds, canine incest, and the problems inbreeding can cause. Now, in fact, there are some ugly health consequences to breeding for extreme looks. And as a behavior consultant, I'm also seeing, seeing some of these, and I'm hearing from colleagues about iffy temperament, which may or may not be a result of breeding for looks alone. Seizure disorders, back propped in, birthing difficulties, even predisposition to cancer. Arguably more than 500 genetic diseases plague our pedigree dogs. Now how the holy heck has this happened? Are all pedigree dogs in deep doo-doo? Surely the breeders aren't out to hurt the dogs they love, so, so what are they thinking? Are they blinded by the shiny ribbons and silver cups? I'm delighted to welcome Christy Keast to the show. She's a professional journalist with a primary interest in animal health issues. Now, Christy's a contributing editor of the Pet Connection syndicated feature. You've probably read some of her work. And she's also the online pet care columnist for the San Francisco Chronicles website. She writes Your Whole Pet column twice a month. Also, she has bred and shown Scottish deerhounds and has been quite active in both the National and the uh, California Deerhound Clubs. So she has a particular interest in today's topic on a whole number of levels. We have a lot to howl about today with Christy Keith after we listen to these messages from our sponsor. Okay, time to call off the dogs. Pet Peeves will be back with more biting topics right after we kibble a little with our sponsors. Pick up something unique at a Bone to Pick dog boutique. A Bone to Pick has cool hip fashions for big and small dogs that will have their tails wagging in style. Cat products too. A-B-O-N-E-T-O-P-I-C-K.com. Check out our eco-friendly pet products and gifts for humans too. A-B-O-N-E-T-O-P-I-C-K.com. Get your pet's mouth watering monthly with our Gourmet Treat of the Month Club. And join a Bone to Pick's free birthday club for your puppy. A-B-O-N-E. Dash to dash P-I-C-K dot com. Pick up something special for your best friend at a bone to pick. A B O N E dash T-O dash P-I-C-K dot com. Get 10% off with coupon code PetLife. 
Hey, all you dog stylists, are you on the cutting edge of canine design and shaggy chic? Groomer Has It on Animal Planet is now casting for season two. Groomer Has It is looking for competitive dog stylists with amazing personalities to compete to become Animal Planet's top groomer. $50,000 grand prize for the winner, plus weekly compensation for all contestants during filming. If you have what it takes to be the top groomer, then audition for Groomer Has It today. For more information, contact Catherine at 310-727-3337, extension 71272, or email groomer has it at gmail.com Pet Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets where you can always expect the unexpected Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters ghosts, totems, psychic animals animal souls, animal angels and animals in religion with a little cryptozoology thrown in Step into the supernatural world of pets with your Paranormal Pets ghostly host, Dusty Rainbolt, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. We know you're foaming at the mouth to get back to pet peeves. So here's Amy with some more tail-tying, fur-flying fun. Welcome back to Pet Peeves on Pet Life Radio. We're talking with Christy Keith, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the show. How are you, Christy? Hi, Amy. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. But what I like to do before we get into the nitty-gritty is, is learn a little bit about our guest. Tell me a little about yourself. What critters do you have right now? What cats, what dogs in particular do you have sharing your heart? Well, right now I actually have the smallest number of pets I've ever had in my life. I have two dogs, a nine-and-a-half-year-old Scottish deerhound named Rebel and a nine-and-a-half-year-old Borzoi named Kiri. And uh, I've had uh, as many as 11 dogs and five cats at one time uh, when I lived in the country years ago. But I've mo- I recently moved back to the city, and uh, my, you know, I, I certainly, when I say I scaled down, I mean I didn't add new animals. I certainly didn't get rid of anybody that I had. But uh, when my numbers started dropping, they got to a certain level, I thought that was a good time to come back to the city. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they do kind of get into our hearts. But in, in fact, if listeners aren't aware, describe describe a Scottish deerhound and a boar's voice for people a that Scottish just don't deerhound, know. Scottish um, deerhound, which is my primary breed for the last 25 years or more, I guess. Um, I'm in denial about how many years <laughs> I've been in dogs because it just makes me older. Um, I, uh, they are somewhat like a greyhound, only a bit bigger. And they have a shaggy gray coat, kind of like what you see in an Irish wolfhound, which is a breed people are a little more familiar with. Scottish deerhounds are faster, uh, more slender. They have a more greyhound-like head than an Irish wolfhound, but they're, they're usually mistaken for them by people who just see us in the street. And a borzoi is also called a Russian wolfhound. And um, my borzoi, Kiri, is much smaller than my deerhound, Rebel. She's about about the size of the smallish greyhound. 
and she has a long, very beautiful, elegant black and white coat. Um, she is the glamour girl at our house. <laughs> <laughs> but they're both relatives of the greyhound, so they're you know dogs who like to run and who can run very, very fast. Well, let's get right to it, Christy. Um, okay. You know, over the years, the look of many of our dog breeds has changed. It's kind of gone to some extremes. The legs maybe have gotten shorter, the nose more pushed in, the ears drag the ground now perhaps. They look a little bit different, some of them quite a bit different than even a 100 years ago. Now, is that why we're seeing more problems or are we seeing more problems? And were these breeds healthier in the past? Is it just about how the dogs look? I mean, you've asked a tremendous amount of questions there. It covers a lot of ground. And my personal opinion is, is that what I would call, I think, artificial selective breeding by breeders, whatever the reason that we're making our selection, is going to have consequences. It's going to result in an animal different from what natural selection would result in. And in addition, in modern times, it's considered pretty much unacceptable to uh, try things out in breeding and then if it doesn't work out, kill them, which in, you know, the, you know, hundreds of years ago when many of these breeds were being developed, it was, uh, you know, it was a harsh, harsher time. People were breeding dogs for utility and necessity and they treated them more like livestock and they had a, maybe a decision-making process not as rigorous as Mother Nature's, but nonetheless they did have one that was more rigorous than we in an era when genetic faults are sometimes seen as virtues, as you pointed out, dogs with extremely flat faces, uh, dogs who can't even reproduce naturally anymore, dogs who have extremes of, t- of conformation such as micro, super, ultra tiny dogs or dogs who are just absolutely enormous beyond the limits ever envisioned by the creators of those breeds. And, you know, these are things where people are deliberately choosing to perpetuate traits that in many cases are associated with health consequences, possibly temperament consequences, as you mentioned. Um, you know, in addition, and this is, this is a little bit where I, my focus was more uh, in my interest in this issue, is overall there is less genetic diversity. In other words, there are fewer genes available in our breeds because we are practicing a form of tight breeding, of artificially narrow breeding that was absolutely unheard of when our breeds were being developed. Breeds were developed by mixing together multiple breeds, dogs of unknown origin, there was new genetic material coming in all the time. Today, we have what's called the closed stud book. Most breeds do not allow you to breed your dog to a dog of another breed or a a dog of unknown origin or a dog registered with a registry that your registry doesn't recognize. And you end up cutting off your genetic uh, pool of available traits and and as that circle becomes narrower and narrower, you're both selecting for extreme traits, which is narrowing down your genetic um, material on one side. You may also be selecting for things like winning in the show ring, and everybody ends up breeding to one dog or three dogs, which is called popular sire syndrome. 
So you have a dog that actually wins and everybody thinks, well, that dog wins, so I want puppies from that dog. Everyone breeds from him and you end up prop, you know, propagating those. You end up losing the genes of that mm-hmm. dog's brothers and that dog's, you know, male cousins and that dog's uncles because people aren't using the uncles and brothers and cousins. They're using that dog. And that dog only has the genes that dog has. His brother may have genes he doesn't have. It's not like we're telling people, you know, you have to go to, you know, the neighbor's, you know, lab mix down the street to get new genes. You know, the dog you want's brother might have genes. And we're just, you know, we're very unaware, uneducated about the consequences of genetic bottlenecking. We don't think about it. We do. I think that that most what we call responsible breeders, the small hobby breeder who does a lot of genetic testing and tries to show their dogs, put titles on their dogs, the ones who are, who self-identify as being the responsible breeder. They, they do care. They do want to produce healthy, happy animals, but to what extent they really understand the, the two somewhat separate issues of you know, line breeding, inbreeding, outcrossing within the animals they're actually considering breeding to and the overall issues of genetic availability in their breed worldwide and in dogs in general and in purebred dogs specifically. A lot of people really don't think about that. They just think, well, this dog's hips are good and his eyes are good and I'm breeding him to, you know, a bitch whose hips are good and eyes are good, so I'm being a good responsible breeder. And they'll look at... a uh, an inbreeding coefficient, which is when you run a, a computer program that tells you how close your breeding is, but they only go back five generations. I see that all the time when people are trying to figure out the coefficient of inbreeding on a breeding and they're doing five generations. Well, you know, if you go back 10 or 15 or 20, you will get a very different number. And in many, many breeds, if you go back far enough, you will discover that on a genetic level, many of these breedings are almost scarily tight breedings, but okay, you're fooling well, yourself. I uh, wanted to ask you also, our listeners may not be up on a lot of the lingo here, so describe what, what are you talking about when you say inbred and line breeding, and is this the incest kind of breeding dogs <laughs> to sisters and to, to daughters and, you know, that kind of thing? Is that you what's, know, what's going uh, Yes, but ultimately, as I look at it, I think that it's not very helpful to use, and I know that you were raising this because it was used in uh, the BBC program, the idea of incest, and comparing this to human incest taboos. It, It doesn't matter what humans think is okay and not okay, nor does it even matter if human incest taboos arose because of genetic issues. What matters is dogs don't have an incest taboo. They don't know or care that you're breeding them to their, you know, sister or whatever. They really don't get that. The reason that we need to think about this is because the close, more closely related two animals are, the greater the chances that you will produce puppies who have traits that both those animals carried uh, genes for. That is why it matters for your litter that you're breeding, those individual puppies that you're bringing into the world do have a greater chance of getting two copies of a gene for some trait we don't want because the more closely related the two animals are, the greater the chances that they'll both have that gene to contribute. But there's 
a bigger picture here, which is it doesn't really matter whether they're siblings or half-siblings or aunt and nephew or, you know, grandfather and, and granddaughter. It, that is a human, you know, thing that we're putting on the dogs. What matters is what, to what degree are these animals related, which you may have dogs who you don't even think are related. But if you did a very lengthy pedigree analysis, you would discover that they are as closely related genetically as litter mates could be. And that's the information we need to have. It doesn't matter. The word incest shouldn't even be looked at. The word we want is degree of inbreeding. You need to know genetically, not familially relation-wise, but genetically how closely related are these individuals and that's information a lot of breeders think they have or want to have but in fact don't have. How do they get this? Um, This is a very good question. In my own breed there are uh, pedigree programs that exist that can go back you know 10 plus generations. I have myself seen individual breeders who have purchased pedigree analysis programs and painstakingly entered or purchased from other people who've already done it, pedigree information for dogs, and analyzed the breeding they were considering to determine the coefficient of inbreeding, the degree those two dogs were related to each other genetically. And I've seen a five-generation pedigree, a 10-generation pedigree, and further back generation pedigrees, and I've seen the inbreeding coefficient rise with every increase in the number of generations they analyzed. So most breeders don't do this. Most breeders wouldn't even know where to start. But in most breeds, there are breeders who do this, and they should try and find them and work with them. I, when I was interested in doing this, I simply posted on the breed list and asked who was doing it, and five people emailed me that night, and I ended up finding someone who lived very close to me who had all the information, and we started playing with pedigrees. That's wonderful information to have, and uh, we are going to learn more about this whole issue. So, folks, please come, sit, and stay, and we'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Okay, time to call off the dogs. Pet Peeves will be back with more biting topics right after we kibble a little with our sponsors. Welcome to Pet Planet. Here's a copy of Pet Planet Magazine, Florida's most informative and fun pet resource magazine. It features heartwarming stories and informative articles from local and national pet experts. Excellent. Pet Planet Magazine offers Operation Planet Rescue, helping rescued pets find new homes. And it's available at 500 locations in South and Central Florida and 24-7 on the Internet at PetPlanetMagazine.com. If you're out and about with your pet, you may be featured in paparazzi, candid pictures of you and your pet. For up-to-date pet-friendly events, activities, and pet-related services and products, Pet Planet Magazine is your final destination. I shall take this magazine home with me. Back to your home planet? No, to my condo in Boca. Pet Planet Magazine. Check them out at www.petplanetmagazine.com or 352-394-8578. It's out of this world. 
If you love your pet, you won't want to miss the Louisville Pet Lovers Expo, September 27th and 28th at the Kentucky Expo Center. Check out the latest in pet products and services from over 100 exhibitors. Meet adoptable pets from local shelters and rescue groups, demonstrations, and a pet fashion show. Plus, you can enter your pet into lots of fun contests with great prizes. It's all at the Louisville Pet Lovers Expo, September 27th and 28th at the Kentucky Expo Center. Go to LouisvillePetExpo.com for more. Want to know what cats like to eat for breakfast? Mice Krispies, of course. Learn everything there is to know about cats on Catitude with your host, Tom Doc. Each week, we'll spotlight a cool cat breed, give up-to-date advice on cat health, and check out spiffy new cat products. So curl up on the couch every week for a perfectly enjoyable time on Catitude. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. We know you're foaming at the mouth to get back to pet peeves. So here's Amy with some more tail-tying, fur-flying fun. We're back and speaking with Christy Keith, a dog advocate and a journalist who writes on canine health plus a lot of other issues. She oversees the editorial and community content and policy for PetHobbyist.com group of pet websites. She's the past director and the editor of America Online's Pet Care Forum, a past director and editor of the Veterinary Information Network's Pet Owner website, and the founding editor of VeterinaryPartner.com. She's also been a contributing editor to The Bark Magazine. Welcome back to the show, Christy. Hi, Amy. Hi. Now, I wanted to, we got into some great information in the first uh, part of our show. I'm going to throw something just out there and get your reaction on this, too. This came up in the BBC show, but it's also something I think a lot of pet owners may believe is true, and maybe we need to examine this a little closer. The wolf has been held up in some circles as, you know, the dog's ancestor. That is the ideal. So arguably, the German Shepherd dog, I mean, he even looks the part, and that happens to be my breed. So are more wolfy-looking or natural-looking dogs necessarily healthier? Because I got to tell you, my first German Shepherd had hip dysplasia and such severe allergies. There was, you know, he was on a boatload of meds just to keep him comfortable. Yeah, I think that's a big misconception. There certainly are health problems associated with extreme traits. In other words, you know, a dog who deviates very much from the wolf is possibly going to have health problems that a wolf-like dog won't have. But these things aren't, these things are things you can see. What's more troubling are invisible traits. You can have not just a dog who looks like a wolf, you can have a wolf who's unbelievably inbred. It's, this doesn't happen in nature very often, um, but sometimes you'll have a population that's artificially cut off from other wolves so that they're on an island or whatever and they become extremely inbred. And I think you probably have heard about cheetahs who are genetically just all very, very close to each other. But for some reason, the, the cheetah has become genetically very, very inbred. And so this does happen in nature, but it's not the norm. 
And if you just say to yourself, all that matters is what the dog looks like, you are really cutting yourself off from the real issue, which is how inbred is the population. There's a, an individual dog can be very inbred, but how inbred is your population? And this is where the whole problem of breeds has arisen, that when you start, what you're doing with your breeds is you're kind of doing what these wolves on an island had done to them by nature. You have cut them off from any influx of new genes and you end up with an inbred population of dogs, meaning there aren't any more genes anywhere in the pool you're willing to take them from. So you may have, you know, we'll just make up a dog, you know, the uh, California mountain dog. The California mountain dog may be incredibly inbred as a breed, and you could breed him to the Labrador Retriever down the street and get new breeds, but the California Mountain Dog Club of America won't allow that. They won't register those dogs. You can't show them at an AKC show. You can't, you know, get papers for them. So, you know, you, you, have, you have put your dogs on a genetic island. And that is why the issue of what the dog looks like, while it may tell you something about health problems they might have, and it certainly is the reason that we have narrowed our genetic pool so much is to get and keep and fix those traits, you can't just tell from looking at a dog, like you say, a German Shepherd has a lot of genetic problems potentially. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Now, the German Shepherd breed, I mean, you know all this, they, they actually have a lot of different gene pools available to them because there are a lot of different little islands of German Shepherds in the world. But, you know, you'll find that the, uh, you know, American show people don't want to breed to, you know, obedience German shepherds and pet right. German shepherds and European German shepherds and working German shepherds. You know, everybody, working lines, sure. Yeah, I mean, they've gotten, they've, they've made their islands, you know, they've hacked their islands into tiny little icebergs and they're all floating around on them and they won't even use the genes they've got in their own breed, let alone going beyond their breed. So going back to the wolf, yes, in general, I would say for an individual dog, looking wolf-like means that they have a healthier ear, a healthier eye, a healthier, uh, you know, skeleton. You know, you can say to yourself, well, the chances are better. This dog isn't going to have the problems you would see with the ear dragging on the ground or the very flat face or a corkscrew tail. But the dog could still be incredibly inbred and could still have all kinds of invisible genetic problems. So you can't just focus on looks. And that's where I get upset at an excessive focus on you know, very soundbite photo op kind of things like micro tiny dogs, which I think are a real problem and a real issue. And yet the problem with them is not, you know, that they're silly. The problem with them is that in order to get them like this, we have to make breeding choices that limit the availability of genes and that may have an impact on that individual dog that's very negative as well. Well, that leads to a couple of questions, actually. Let's take one at a time here. Are the mutts than any healthier. Secondly, whatever poo dogs and the teacup <laughs> brand dogs that are out there, those are a good thing, bad thing, flavor of the month thing. So let's go with the mutts first. Are these healthier or not necessarily? Uh, most mutts today, and I mean, this is a generalization, but the preponderance of mixed breed dogs are first generation offspring of two purebred dogs. They are not Honest to God, survival of the fittest Heinz 57 pariah dogs. <laughs> okay, right. They are the golden retriever down the street, got to your boxer. That's what they are. So 
In the first generation of an outcross, you often get something that's called genetic masking. I'm sure, you know, everyone's heard of that. And what it means is the dogs are very likely not carrying duplicate genes for something because they're just not that closely related. They can be. There are mixed breeds with all kinds of genetic conditions that they inherited from their parents, hip dysplasia, allergies, uh, luxating patellas, um, you know, all kinds of problems. But you've just lowered the chances that they will have them. The problem is, you know, the amount of information that you'll sometimes have as a purebred dog breeder may exceed the amount of information available or used by someone whose two purebred dogs got together accidentally. So you may have a dysplastic Labrador retriever whose owner didn't intend to breed him and really, you know, didn't even know about checking on hips to a boxer uh, or some other breed, a golden retriever who also is dysplastic, probably a lot of puppies with hip dysplasia um, in that litter that a a good breeder, careful breeder who did hip screening and had five you know, or six generations of hip testing on the dogs and the pedigree would have avoided. However, you also, if you're lucky, will have two dogs who don't double up on bad genes and maybe those mixed breed puppies will in fact be healthier, but it's not the same as the sort of, you know, as I said, the Heinz 57 survival of the fittest kind of mixed breed dog who we think of as being genetically healthier um, and probably is um, certainly has that population has a lot more genes than the population of a purebred dog is likely to have. But will the individual dog be healthier? Not necessarily. I had a beautiful chow mix who had hip dysplasia and several and severe allergies. She had a lot of genetic problems. In fact, she had more genetic problems than every deer hound I've ever owned in my life combined. So, you know, it, she was the first generation offspring of two purebred dogs. She was a chow Australian shepherd mix. And, you know, chows are a breed that have a lot of health problems, just for example, and she had many of them. So it, it's just a, it's a crapshoot with these first generation crosses. And overall, statistically, yeah, you may see fewer problems in those dogs but they are also still carrying the genetic problems they inherited from their parents. And if you continue to breed those dogs, you will, you know, you will one day potentially end up with exactly what you started out with. It's not in and of itself the cure. Okay, so when we're talking about the uh, real popular uh, breeds of the day, the Labradoodle crosses and the whatever poo dogs, you may get that that first generation uh, crapshoot may fall in your favor or you may get the worst of both or all breeds. Sure. And, you know, what? There, there are actually two very separate things going on. There are people who are breeding two breeds together, trying to create a new breed, and then they're breeding those offspring together and genuinely trying to develop a new breed. Whether they should or shouldn't, I'm not discussing that. I'm just saying that's what they're doing. Right. With poo dogs, they are not trying to create a new breed. It is what I call a recipe dog where every generation is made fresh with the mating of two purebred dogs. You never go on because you lose the traits. The the way the dogs look becomes too variable. After the first generation, you end up with dogs who look like anything. I mean, it's very unpredictable. It's not what they want. They want that very distinctive, you know, let's say the Cocker Poodle mix 
they want that look. They want the way that dog looks. And if you go on beyond the first generation, you usually don't get that. So they aren't genuinely creating what you would truly term a new breed. They are doing an endless um, first generation cross of two purebred dogs. Two breeds, by the way, the Cocker Spaniel and the Poodle, who have enormous genetic problems. Okay, and the same with some of these, what I call the teacup brand dogs, as, as, you, as you said. I mean, these are kind of the flavor of the month fashion-wise. We did, I did a whole show on um, sometimes uh, high fashion just gets in the way. A, a dog should not be a fashion accessory. And I think that's what we're turning some of the yeah. uh, demand for it is, is maybe making some breeders or some unethical folks decide, hey, there's a market here. You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting a smaller dog. I've had giant breed dogs all my adult life. I love them. Um, but as I've get, gotten older, I've begun to realize that, you know, <laughs> they have their challenges. Not everyone's up to them and not everybody wants them. I have friends who live in apartments. I have friends who have physical infirmities who are very elderly. And I know people who just like little dogs. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, what is wrong is micro, super tiny, teacup, exactly. purse-sized, pocket-sized dogs because there's absolutely no way to breed down that small without creating huge, huge health problems, not just for the breed, but for the dog. For instance. It, for instance, <laughs> what if the gene for your dog's size is not related to the gene for how many teeth your dog will have. You're going to end up with a dog whose head is too small for his teeth. Let's take an example from Pedigree Dogs Exposed, the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, whose brain is too big for its skull. This isn't good. No. <laughs> this is a very, very bad thing. Well, I know I interviewed a lady that um, had a service dog, a Yorkie, that she happened to come across. They were not bred purposefully, but this was a an undersized dog. And because of her, her challenges, she could not have a, a full-size Yorkie. She could only lift a certain size. And this dog had enormous challenges nutritionally. She was so small, she could not digest protein. They had to do a very specialized diet. So there are very specific challenges and they may not be the same for every dog. Well, I mean, uh, when you look at the extremely tiny dogs or even just any toy breed, really, they do have problems with um, hypoglycemia. They need to eat more frequently. You know, I'm trying, uh, there's there's an awful lot I'd want to say because I think we're talking a lot about, you know, breeds. And I have kind of become wary of the whole concept of breeds, even though I love mine. Um, I love Scottish deerhounds. I don't want the world to no longer have them. But by the same token, I don't want the world to no longer have them because they're sick. And we can lose them by trying to preserve them. I want to preserve the Scottish deerhound for what they are, not some arbitrary registration that they have in a book approved by the American Kennel Club. I want to preserve them as healthy, fast, um, you know, hounds and not ornaments and sickly ornaments. And these problems aren't limited to tiny little dogs and they're not limited to giant dogs. I mean, you've seen the same thing as you say in a dog very similar to the wolf. Not every dog, I'm just saying, it can happen. And so I like to have, you know, I've, I've 
lately become interested in the idea of stopping uh, the closed stud book practice of breeding and begin to understand that preserving genetic diversity in our pool of dogs needs to be just as important or more important than winning at dog shows and that the registration with a club in a book doesn't matter if the dogs are sick all the time or if they have freakish confirmation traits that give them health problems and physical challenges. So I'm, I'm trying to understand if there isn't a way to take all the information that we've learned in the last 20 years about genetics and everything that we've learned about the negative impacts on our dogs from inbreeding, by which I don't mean a tight breeding of one individual litter, but general inbreeding, lack of genetic diversity within our breed or the pool of our breed that we're willing to breed to, and to start to deliberately try and preserve genetic diversity among types of dog, not just the flat-coated retriever, the golden retriever, the German shepherd dog, the border collie, but kinds of dogs and start defining our dogs by broader terms instead of just their registration telling you what breed they are, that, you know, 100, 500 years ago, you could have a dog of a breed, that's a collie, that's a deer hound, you know, that's a coon hound. But did they have some pedigree registered with a kennel club that would tell you indeed that's a coon hound, that's a collie? No, they just knew it was. We could go back to that a little bit. You know, we could we could move in that direction more, and I think it would be good for our breeds. What I'd like to ask also is for listeners who have a pedigree dog now or are looking into getting one, what's your best advice if they want a healthy companion? I'm not talking about going out and getting a dog they want to show, but they want a healthy companion. What does registration papers guarantee? What is, does it not say? Are working lines a better answer? Registration papers are worthless because they only depend on you can you can register a dog who can barely breathe it's so sick all the registration tells you is that the parents were both registered as the same breed with whoever is issuing them what you want if your heart is set on a specific breed of dog what you want is a dog that has the qualities that you like about that dog that's in your mind in your heart you want a dog who isn't carrying any genetic ticking time bombs that are going to break your heart down the road. And in order to get that, first of all, there are no guarantees in life. You may not get that even if you do everything right because these are living creatures. They're not washing machines. And we don't have all the information that we need to sit down and say, well, okay, I'm going to program out the hip dysplasia and the dental problems and the you know liver being, you know, deformed at birth and all these things. I mean, you can't do that. They're, they are animals. So there always is going to be some risk when you bring a dog into your home. But as long as you work, if, if you again, if you want a purebred dog, you work with a breeder who's very involved in their breed, who has been in it a long time, who really knows the dogs and the pedigree and really cares about them and does whatever genetic testing is available in their breed and does something with their dogs besides just cranking them out and selling them, who shows them, does obedience with them, takes them uh, for temperament testing, uses them as therapy dogs, does agility, does performance events like herding or you know um, hunting with their dogs. 
their dogs are being tested somewhere outside of their living room. These are things that will increase the odds, again, talking about purebred dogs, that you're going to get one who is less likely to have problems. There's, it's also possible to, and I strongly encourage people to consider adopting an adult dog from a rescue, especially if you're attracted to the breeds like Goldens and Labs, which are the most popular dogs in America, which fill the rescues and the shelters. Go to a breed rescue group and try and find the rescue person who's as knowledgeable as that breeder I just described. They won't have the genetic information on the dog, and in fact, the dog may have been very carelessly bred but they will be able to tell you what that dog is like, their temperament, how they will fit into your family. And when you're dealing with an adult, some of these health problems will by then become apparent. You will have a greater likelihood of knowing how their hips are and whether they have allergies and the things that are really going to get you down and cost you a lot of money at the vet. So, you know, again, it's a gamble, but going through a rescue, even though you have the genetic question marks, you also have the adult dog in front of you. So some of those questions have been answered. And, of course, the doing a good deed and giving a rescue dog another chance outweighs, in my book, the risk you're taking genetically. So those are the two ways that I would suggest getting a purebred dog. I certainly wouldn't walk into a pet store and buy one because nobody is keeping careful records or any records of the genetic health of the offspring produced by large-scale commercial breeders, and, you know, you're getting the worst of both worlds then. You're getting a dog that nobody is able to give you any good advice on genetically or for what the dog is in front of you, and you're not saving a dog's life. You're just purchasing something and perpetuating a system that, you know, doesn't, in my opinion, produce the best family pets. So um, I I do think that... uh, if people are interested in just a good dog and they aren't specifically hooked on a single breed, then my advice about going to a rescue group would be the same um, and just broaden your search to include dogs of the size and type you're looking for who have the qualities. Should they get a working dog? Generally, there are exceptions, but be cautious. You may be getting a healthier dog, but you're also going to be getting a dog who has been selectively bred to be good at work that you don't have for that dog to do. Right. So if you, if, yeah, I mean, you could be creating all kinds of behavior problems um, for yourself. You know, the dog is just doing what the dog is supposed to do and it isn't going to fit in with the average family lifestyle very well. The dogs are likely to be bored. A bored dog can be a destructive dog. Um, they want work. They want something to do. They want to be challenged. On the other hand, you know, some people, for example, I've seen border collies do well as so-called pets because the owners were really into agility and they were really into obedience and they jogged, you know, 10 miles a day and, you know, they made it work, but they made it work. If what you want is just a good old family dog, then you should be finding a good old family dog and not saying, oh, well, I'm going to go get myself a, you know, a highly trained narcotics dog from, you know, working dog breeding German Shepherd because that dog will be healthier. Well, maybe so, but that dog's going to be bored out of his mind at your house. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Christy, where can people go to read more about your work? Uh, Give us your blog address. PetConnection.com slash blog. 
And then, you know, as you pointed out, I write all over the place, but generally I uh, post when I have new articles or when I'm speaking or being on a radio show or anything like that. I post it on Pet Connection, and uh, I contribute to the Pet Connection feature, which is in uh, about 100 newspapers nationwide, and the San Francisco Chronicle, sfgate.com, every two weeks. So people can always, always find me at Pet Connection, though always opinionated, always good information. Please look up Christy Keith when you get the chance. Uh, But we are out of time, and I'd like to thank Christy very much and the producers for making Pet Peeves possible. Tune in next week with Pet Peeves on PetLifeRadio.com to hear more about what hisses you off. Email me suggestions or post a note to my blog by dialing up PetLifeRadio.com and clicking on the Pet Peeves logo. I would also like to invite you to check out my free behavior and care tips newsletter uh, called Pet Peeves, available from Shujai.com. Woofs and wags until next time. Cherish your dogs, whether they're pedigreed or random bred, rescued or, or picked out months in advance. They're all champions in our hearts. Thank goodness the dogs don't care what we humans look like. Now strive to keep them happy and healthy because you don't want them to get peeved. That's it. You're madder than a junkyard dog and you're not going to take it anymore. Your feathers are ruffled, your dander is up, and you've got a definite bone to pick. Join us each week on Pet Peeves, the show that lets you dig through the dirt and unleash your passion for pets. Your host, pet expert and award-winning author, Amy Shojai, will talk about what makes you howl and what hisses you off. Pet Peeves, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.